Welcome to this edition of Journals of Spiritual Discovery, brought to you by spiritualteachers.org. I'm your host, Sean Nevins. Hello and welcome to this month's edition of Journals of Spiritual Discovery. My guest this time is Howdy McCoskey. Howdy's the author of Falling for Truth, A Spiritual Death and Awakening, which was recently published by the Tat Foundation. We became acquainted in the course of bringing that book to press, and I thought it'd be interesting to explore his background, as well as give listeners an introduction to his book. To check out all the books published by the Tat Foundation, visit tatfoundation.org and look for the Books and Recordings link at the top of the page. By the way, there is a video of this interview available, so visit spiritualteachers.org forward slash podcast if you want to view that. I hope you enjoy this interview with Howdy McCoskey. Well, great. Uh, thanks, Howdy. Thanks for joining me. Uh was morning for me, but I believe is uh, later in the evening for you, right? You're in Norway? Yeah. Yeah, so it's 7.20 here, so nine hours. And uh, I'm just curious, how did you wind up in Norway? That's a bit of a story, uh, too. I um, got married. So marrying a local is an easy way to move to another country. <laughs> yeah, I can relate to that. That's how I wound up in California. Yeah, that's kind of another country, California. It is a bit, yeah. Yeah. And uh, it comes with its own challenges and its own positives, right? Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, I'm I'm glad that we could do this. Um, I just wanted to talk a bit. Uh, Tat just published your book, Falling for Truth. That just came out a couple weeks ago. So I was hoping to talk about that a little bit and and just sort of introduce people uh, to you. Maybe get a little more of the background on the on the book and how the book came to be. Yeah, I, I guess the easiest way to say that is um, the book took out of the 10 years of experience. We can talk about the, the lead up to these these experiences that I had. And I was sort of, I was writing a book on ancient Egypt is what I was really doing first on, on the wisdom of ancient Egypt. And I was collecting spiritual information that I thought might be helpful. And then after I had my death experience and the post most of that was so confusing in, in combined with clarity. There was great clarity and great confusion. And in the, uh, there, was, there was just nothing around at the time that was helping with the confusion part of it. There were lots of books writing about the clarity and writing about kind of how you live in the clarity, but nothing writing about how you live in the, how you deal with the confusion of it. And that's where it kind of developed from with the hope that maybe if somebody else is in a similar place, they can learn from my challenges. Yeah. And and when you're referring to the death experience, um, what exactly are you referring to with that? Uh, it's an experience of I, I'd been a seeker for a, a very hardcore seeker for 10 years. I've been lucky enough to meet some outstanding teachers along the way and outstanding uh, individuals from Native Indian traditions, Zen traditions, alchemic traditions. And I thought I kind of knew something. I actually thought I was, I thought I was pretty smart. And then uh, the experience was I fell into a, a canyon, uh, 
uh, a river a river canyon near Calgary where I lived at the time. And in that moment of falling into the, the, the river, heading over the falls, these gigantic falls that are uh, uh, near Calgary, the like, the best way I can describe it is the thing called me stopped. It just ceased to be there. All thoughts, all experience, all hope, all fear, it all just, it just, it just was gone in this microsecond. And all that was left was an awareness that was looking back at all of that saying, oh, none of that was real. And now I'm going to die and it's okay. It was like, it was okay to know that, uh, that it was not real. Um, and uh, that changed everything. That changed all perception completely. Obviously, I didn't go over the falls and then physically didn't die, but the, the thing I'd always thought of myself did. And, and so the book, uh, is the book about the period after that, the exploration that you did, or does it also include uh, prior to that death experience? I think uh, uh, Sean was kind enough to be the one who was, was editing a lot of the, the book and, and, and really being very helpful with it. So uh, Sean has a good background of what's there. And, and yeah, there's, I would say that the last half of the book is a lot about the time that got me to that experience. What I thought was, what I thought was certain seeking, which was very helpful and ha certainly happy to talk about the, the practices and the things I learned in that stage. And then the first half of the book is kind of dealing with the confusion of what happens when you realize you're not your identity anymore. Because when you have a, a, a spiritual experience, a mystical experience, I define that as uh, as something is transformed, something is changed, something is you're seeing you're seeing yourself in reality in a different way, but yourself in reality are still as you've kind of always known them. An awakening experience, which involves death in some way, alters your identity. You are no longer who you thought you were. You no longer trust the things you trusted everything becomes almost like living on uh, on uh, quicksand and you're starting from scratch all over again to try to figure out who you are and where you are mm -hmm. and, and i know that's very confusing for a few people i've had somebody recently in the western u.s who got in touch with me six months ago the same thing had happened to him found me on the internet and he was extremely confused and just at the beginning, to be able to share my story with him in detail, helped him to see that it was nothing to be afraid of. It, it was nothing bad. It was actually something was going on. And if he would just take the time and, and be a bit calm with it, something good could come from it. And, and it has for him. And so, but when you're in it, you're, you feel it's, it's trouble. I don't know if that's something you also went through, the, a, a confusion period following, but uh, it certainly has been part of my experience. Obviously, Richard Rose's work is, is of interest to me, and that's probably that tie-in in your book was what really attracted me some years ago when you proposed this project, um, because I had never seen anybody with such a diverse background as yours also pull in Richard Rose's work and draw parallels between that and different traditions. Yeah, I, 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 one of the first people I had come across luckily was a, a Korean Zen master. And he was at one side direct and confrontational and 
a person you just could not lie to. There was no point in lying because he knew you were he knew you were lying, and and uh, but at the same time he could be grandfatherly and gentle. And what was interesting was years later, I had never heard of Richard Rose until about 10, 10 or 12 years ago after I followed in the canyon. And when I came across some of Rose's writings, I, I, I saw the parallel. I saw that that was very similar to the, the Oriental man that I knew. It was very similar to some of the native medicine men in some of the sweat lodges I'd been in. That, that Rose kind of, to me, was one of the first ones I'd seen from a Western tradition writing in such a clear clean, honest, direct way, and particularly not trying to make the reader feel better, but trying to be as honest as he could with the reader or the person talking to him. And that that's really what drew me to him was the fact that he was just being honest with what he was sharing. Who do you, who's the audience for this book? Like, who do you feel like would benefit most from it? Is it someone who's been through something similar like you mentioned or do you think that there's a for for a, a pretty wide audience I, I guess it's for someone maybe i would say that the number one person i hope the book could reach is someone who's been a spiritual seeker for quite a while and who has been who has been normally like most people looking to be more happy looking to be more peaceful looking to be improved looking to be better and it's not working they're, they're, they've been doing all of the things you're supposed to do. They've been following the meditative practices. They've been going to mindfulness lectures. They've been reading the right books, but they still don't feel anything has changed in their life. Not that my book is going to help change anything, but the hope is that maybe they'll see there's a completely different um, that there's a completely different level of spirituality called going within. And for me, the the, the big trap comes because people think they're going within. They think, but they probably they always think they're going within something. I'm usually show my hands. They think it's in here somehow or in their head. They're going within a body. They're going within a mind. And the great shift happens when something pushes you to see, I'm not going within a me. I'm not going within a self. I'm going beyond that. I'm going into almost a void. I'm going into a nothingness. I'm going into a totality. And when you start to see you're going into that, your spiritual work changes. And I'm sort of sharing, again, what that feels like and what that was like for me, what that experience was like of going into these places and uh, how, at one sense, incredibly exciting it was and how incredibly terrifying it was. And so that experience of going into that totality or that nothingness that was first keyed in for you by this death experience? No, I, I had a number of these experiences uh, along the way prior to that. Um, I was constant. One of my constant seeking things early on was to, was to wonder this, this uh, constant of my thoughts create reality. So generally people are trying to see if they can fix their thought to make them happy and they can, you know, control the world. And I did the opposite. I was like, well, what happens if I stop thinking? Like if literally my mind stopped, what would happen to the external reality? That was, and I worked on this for about six to eight months through a number of practices, mostly walking um, type of gazing practice where you were staring at an object for hours. And, and one day in the midst of all this, I was walking, doing a walking meditation. And there was a person in front of me walking as well, maybe 40, 50 feet in front of me. 
And all of a sudden, in the middle of it, my thought stopped, and he vanished. Like he was just gone. I could see the trees behind him. I could see the, the you know, everything. And then all of a sudden, he reappeared again, kind of shimmered in light and was back again. And, and whoa, okay. And, and that was my first step of seeing reality is not what I thought it was. It's not anywhere what I thought it was because that was not some sort of hallucination. That was really seeing that my mind, my thought was somehow creating the external world. And, and yeah, that was, these things began to, I guess, pile up along the way, these kinds of experiences until the canyon where something else exploded. And I don't, we don't want to scare people about, about what the work is like because it, it's, there's lots of good stuff to it, but generally the good stuff gets talked about a lot. So somebody has to be the devil's advocate and talk about the other stuff that they often talk about. And would you say that um, in terms of the approach that you use in the book, are there specific practices that people can try out? Uh, or is it more... Uh, some more examples from your life uh, trying to get it how how prescriptive is there how much of an instruction manual do you think the book is i would say a little bit low on the instruction manual per se because I, I think it's very hard to give instructions to people because everyone is so different everyone's life experience is different everyone's egoic structure where they where they are locked in is different so to just say if you just do a b and c you'll get the results you want that's that would that's not truthful that would be lying to somebody but I can share what I did to see if that rings interesting to somebody that they would you know they would like to try that as well um, for example I, I actually recapitulated my entire life I looked at every single second of my life going from whatever that was age 35 back to zero and that was a, a an incredibly difficult experience on one hand I would sit in the closet every night from 11 at night till 7 in the morning, just sitting there, reviewing, reviewing, and getting very frustrated and very upset with the process and with my, myself and what I was seeing and what I was seeing of myself until I was finished. And I had sort of a, a giant epiphany that I mentioned in the book where I, I saw hidden moments of my life that had been so, that were locked away that I didn't even know that it happened, all of a sudden could spring forth. And when these hidden moments of, of life revealed, it was like having the, the deepest possible meditative experience because now what was hidden was clearly could be seen. So it's sharing it's sharing some of those kinds of experiences of, of what happens what happens if you really work within and there is a payoff at the end, you just may not see it while you're doing it. It's interesting that you brought that up, uh, re capitulation i guess that's the way it's pronounced or right. the way an american might pronounce it uh, but I, I i did actually want to mention that um it's in the appendix of the book i believe um uh, where where did you learn that uh technique uh, because that's a, incredibly fascinating and intense i'd never heard of this before yeah, it's uh, it, it's interesting though because I, I cross referenced it to Rose, right? Because Ro I remember Rose had said in one of his lectures that the best meditation you could ever do is look at your own traumas. Go for, forget about sitting quietly. Go back, find where you've had trouble, and really look into it. And in a sense, that is recapitulation. 
Uh, I got the practice from uh, reading some old Carlos Castaneda books. He was the first one that had brought it up and brought up the term, but he didn't describe the practice very well. And it wasn't until I actually read a book by a, a gentleman named Victor Sanchez that explained his uh, view of it in a, just an entire book, complete detail of, of what to do and how to do it. And something in me felt there's something very true in this. And then once I started it, I had to sort of, you had to find your own way. So I, I do in the appendix of, of my book, give my complete version of how I recapitulated the, the complete story of what I did, how I built lists, uh, where I sat, uh, how long I took, what I did. Not so much that it can be like a, a guide to do what I did, but to say, okay, here's you can start with that, but find your own way of doing it. And, uh, because once you begin to, because recapitulation will generally, for, at least for me, show again those two things. One was how much of my life was just a, a giant pattern over and over and over again. The same thing. I remember one of my recapitulations, I saw that I went on three separate dates with three different women to the exact same places, on the exact same walks on the same trail, saying the exact same things at the benches. And it was, it was, it was nauseating, actually to see that I couldn't even come up with one new thing to say in the course of three or four hours. I was literally repeating the last version over and over and over again. And then the second part of it is like they seeing these parts of your past that you, you forgot that you hid, either with, that were really beautiful, that you couldn't handle the beauty, or that were so, uh, that were so changing. And they're often not, they're not, they're not bad moments. They're not hugely traumatic moments necessarily. They're very small. They're, they're one in my life it lasted about three seconds, but that three seconds that I buried changed the whole direction of my life and I didn't know it. And, and that's what this process, at least for me, has managed to do, managed to do. It, it, it unraveled so much hidden within. It's a perfect example of, it doesn't seem like you're going within but that truly is a going within practice because you're going much farther than yourself or your body or your mind or anything else. You're going to the core level of, of who is experiencing your life. Over the years, I've known a number of people who've read Carlos Castaneda's books, but the number of people who actually applied something from, <laughs> from his books is minuscule. Uh, because like you say, he doesn't give much instruction. He mentions these things. And uh, so I think it's really neat that you actually worked it. Yeah, I, I think partially he was playing with his readers a little bit. Um, he was so interesting because I read his first book many years ago when I first when I got started when I when I got my I was in the, for people to know I I was I'd had a fairly normal life. Um, I wound up when I was about twenty one in my last year of university having my father steal most of my money, so I, I had to wait two years to finish my university degree. Just after that, I had a girlfriend that was, uh, an ex-girlfriend that was murdered. And these things were spinning me emotionally out of control. And I wound up in a really deep depression to the point that I was really ready to, to kill myself when a television program on pyramid building came on television. And there was like an instantaneous jolt. There's a, there's a, a, a painting behind me that you can't see, but it's of the Annunciation a famous Christian topic of the Virgin Mary being impregnated. And, and it was symbolic of that. It was just very symbolic of the spirit impregnating me to try to study ancient Egyptian wisdom. 
And within that study became the study of spirituality and spiritual traditions, be they uh, alchemic or native or Zen or Buddhist. It didn't matter what it was. I wanted to study it, hoping it would help me understand the ancient ancient world. And Castaneda came to me, so again, finally getting back to your question. And I read the first book and thought, this is terrible. This is the worst spiritual book I've ever read. And I just I put it away. I had no interest in it. And about three years later, I came across Tales of Power. It was sitting in some friend's place I was staying. I had nothing to read, so I read it. And I thought, this is a completely different book. I don't know who wrote the, it. felt like two different people had written these books. And when I got some of the other books, I realized, okay, Castaneda was, I, I think he was pretending to be a wise person in his first book. But somewhere between books two and three, something changed in him and it became, it became real. And so once I started, yeah, attempting to say, okay, what if I try some of this stuff? What'll happen? Um, it was an incredible, interesting experience. And, and like you say, not many people did it. And then I got the opportunity years later to spend time in the sweat lodges of medicine people, actual real native Indian medicine people and found that while there's a sort of similarity kind of to what they do to what Castaneda suggested, it's not the same at all. And they're, what, what they still do in their, in their actual tradition is, is quite different. Uh, and, and it also was a great opportunity to, to see the, some of the ancient tradition done the way it's still, still done. And in regards to the alchemy, um, again, this is fascinating to me because that's a, a area of exploration that I have little experience with. Um, and, um, in the appendix, you have, uh, the, the plates, these images from the, is it Mutus Liber? I think that's the way it's pronounced. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, can you, can you give listeners, um, like a nutshell yeah. what does alchemy have to do with with going within or, or meditation and and then maybe in the in the course of when you when you put this together you could call up one of the mutus lever plates so that people could, mm -hmm. could see them to see what we're we're discussing um alchemy seems to be it's hard to know where it formed or or but it seems to be something that runs through the ancient world as a as a teaching device particularly a symbolic teaching device the the, the presentation of of the teaching is not open it's very it's almost a, a covert but it's not hidden hidden it's out there if you can figure out the symbolism and you can understand what's being presented uh, you can do it as well and quite simply alchemy is just the study of yourself and the study of yourself, um, not just internally, but the study of the external world as well. So learning yourself through nature at the, at the same time. Uh, and what's so fascinating with the comparison to the, the TAP Foundation and what Rose was teaching is alchemy has three major stages. Uh, Negretto, which is a black period where you go through your, your deepest stuff, an albedo period where you wash and you cleanse yourself, and then a rubedo, a red period where you you uh, reach a, a let's say a, a more complete state or a more a better seeing state. And Rose had a similar situation where he felt there were three pyramids of spiritual work, and each pyramid was different and built upon the other ones. And again, as I read in the book, I found unbelievable similarity between what Rose was presenting and with alchemy. What Rose was presenting and, 
and uh, the the way ancient pyramids were built and, and, and what was done in the ancient Egyptian pyramids. What was uh, even someone that Adi Ash like Adi Ashanti, who, who gave some interesting advice about what happens after you have an awakening experience, that matched what Rose was saying. So to me, it was all of this stuff was coming together um, and it wasn't any different. It was slight it was slightly presented differently, but the core message was the same. And that was part of the reason I thought, oh, this could make an interesting book for, for, for you and that foundation because it's, it, it can take what Rose was doing and, and maybe show it that it's, it wasn't just Rose saying this, it was, it's, it's been there for thousands of years. He just, uh, he just had a Western American way of presenting it for thankfully for us to be able to, to not need to know the symbolism. Your experiences with uh, with Native American teachers, uh, I recall that you describe a sweat lodge, I believe, in the book. What would you say, what was your takeaway from those teachings? Um, it was, I'll give the, the experience that I have in the book because it's a really good example uh, for your question. And that was, uh, I'd been going to a series of sweats on a Sutina reserve with a Sutina medicine man. Bruce Starlight for every Sunday. Um, we've been going out for six or seven months. And then one Sunday, there was there was no fire. There was nothing ready. The sweat lodge was not prepared. And everyone got out of the car and there was a bit of fighting going on. Why is there no sweat? And it was very clear, today is the day we have to clean it. The, the lodge needs to be cleaned. And it's a beautiful day. The people that, that came did not want to clean the sweat. They wanted their sweat lodge. They wanted their experience. And they all just said, well, we're going, we're, we're going to go for a walk. And they asked me, did you want to come? And I turned to Bruce. I said, do you need help? He said, yes. I said, okay, I'll stay. And in the course of taking down the lodge, he began saying things like, you know, the sweat lodge keeps all of our pains when we do the healing, and we need to do this to release them, to let them go. So and he said, it's good that you stayed. And then he started presenting why the sweat is tied a certain way, why the door is a certain way, why the cover is a certain way. And, and to me, the example is that uh, it was a perfect example of if you make a commitment to something and you say that you're going to do something and you're, you're going to follow through, the universe will, will return your commitment, will return your, the, the work you put in. And, and that was very much a part of how the natives work. Another native medicine man I had, when I met him, I went to his house. It was incredible. Very short story. And I sat there for an hour. I just sat there. He sat in the other chair. I sat in my chair. He didn't talk to me. He didn't ask me anything. He didn't get me anything. We just sat there for an hour. And at the end of it, he said, okay, you can come back next week and see me. That he was, he was testing me. Would I just sit there for an hour? Would I be patient enough to just wait and not demand anything? So this is, this is part of how, how their, their tradition is. It's, it almost feels like they're testing you all the time. They're, they're, they're always, they're, they're, there's, no matter what's going on, it's a test. It may seem like they're just getting you a cup of tea or they're asking you to bring some rocks into the sweat or they're asking you to, you know, but it's, not, it's a test. They're checking to see what you're doing and how you're doing it and where your thoughts are. And uh, so to me, that's, that's one of the most amazing things about their tradition is how, how it seems like they're so aware. They're so, they're so aware of, what, of what's going on around them all the time. And you mentioned uh, you mentioned your early interest in the Egyptian spirituality or the or the pyramids. I don't recall. Did you have a 
Did you discover that material through your own research or did you have a, a mentor who who provided some guidance in that realm? Not, not, no, that was all mostly just my own research. Just, just digging into stuff and really getting a good uh, bullshit meter very quickly. Because so much information, particularly about history, is it's just not true. It's not ever close to true. And it, it didn't, I was so lucky because I, while I have a history degree in, in university, it wasn't in ancient history. So I wasn't indoctrinated in slaves pulling stones up ramps and copper tools being used on things. I was free to just examine what I found. And like your first trip to the Giza Plateau and you see diorite granite with the equivalent of what would be laser saw cuts into it or perfectly smoothed down to like feeling like glass. You know right away that this is not copper tools. <laughs> this, is, this is something so unbelievably advanced that it actually blows your mind when you actually start to see it up close. And, uh, and you really can't study the ancient world and the ancient things except there. You can't you can't study it from a book. You can't read it on the internet. It just gives you a preparation. You have to because it's a it's a it truly is a feeling. It's an experience. Uh, you're, you're in a different a different world. Yeah, it's so that's that that took a, a large portion of my life and still does trying to understand what did they know that we don't mm. and is there is there a a tie-in uh from that exploration to going within did you learn something from the egyptians about going within yeah they because they um their temp what you might call a temple process was all about taking people as deeply as they could uh, through death. People see Egypt as a death culture in a sense that they're focused on the afterlife and actually the truth was they were focused on the pre-life. They wanted the seeker to die before they actually died. To have the death experience while they were alive in order to gain the, you might say, the power or the knowledge that only comes after you physically pass away. And so their whole practice was designed to create what you might call like in Zen a series of shocks, extreme shocks, in order to see can they push a person beyond this realm in order to come back with that with the power to hopefully interact in, in, a, in, a, in a really positive way here. I mean is there are there specific practices that you were able to dig up or was it more the was it more inspirational for you? Um, these teachings that you discovered you, you always have to be careful because it's, it's very it's very easy to to say I know something for sure about something five or ten thousand years ago um, we don't have the video we don't have audio we don't unless I have a time machine I can't know for sure and I always I always try to make sure I share that with everyone that they know that but um, but there are certain parts sometimes when you would go to a temple having the alchemic background and the symbolic background you can start reading the symbol. You can start reading the walls and reading what's carved in there and start getting an idea of what's one, what one wall is saying compared to another wall, what one part of the temple is doing to another part of the temple. And then you come to the places like pyramids or a few temples that have no writing whatsoever that are built out of monolithic blocks, like 200-ton blocks. And 
the experiences are so great that I've had, I wouldn't share them until I die. Hmm. But yeah, but but the experiences were what were what were transformative. So I can't say it was a practice per se, but it was something I could take into my practice again. When I first went into the Great Pyramid, uh, I waited 30 days in Egypt before I went in. I went to see every other temple, every other site before I finally decided to go in. And when I crawled in the first time, and I can still see, I'm, I'm crawling in, and I can see into the into the chamber. At the same time, I'm standing in the chamber watching myself crawl in. So already in that moment, I've got two me's, two perceptions, two consciousness, and I wasn't sure which one I was, which one is the real me, so to speak. And, uh, and already an experience like that will force you to go within because you have to start asking, how was I able to see myself while in a wake state from an external point like that? Did it have something to do with me? Did it have something to do with the pyramid? Did it have something to do with my practice? Where does that come from? Um, so for me, it was the experiences that happened there that could go back into practice, could go back into a new, a new line of questioning. And this is all pre the experience in the canyon that you described, right? Yeah, this was all, I was, I was, I was hardcore for five or six years. Uh, a normal day would, I'd probably do Qigong twice a day. I would do a walking meditation. I would do a gazing meditation. There'd be a seated meditation. There would be, a, there would be a, some writing on myself, some journal, some journal work. There'd be some dreaming work. Uh, it was almost the recapitulation was going on. Uh, so I was like, and at the same time, reading as much material as I could. It, I actually don't know how I did it in the 24-hour day. It's almost like it felt like time ran differently at that time because I was so serious. That it's like the universe said, if you're going to keep doing all this stuff, we'll make time for you. But you can't keep that up forever. And eventually, you start to burn out. And you eventually start to to wonder why am I doing all this? Why, why am I why am I putting all this effort into something that I don't know has any end result? My friends are doing really well. They've got some nice cars. They bought a nice home. Their their life's going pretty good. I'm sitting in the closets, you know, going over when I was 15 years old. Is this is this really what I should be doing? <laughs> and so you yeah you really start wondering what you're doing. And I think that's a part of every seeker's path is that is that time you kind of, you just stop. You just, I don't know what the hell I'm doing. And that happened about a month before I fell in the canyon. That was my stop period when I just said, I don't know what I'm doing. This seems stupid. And I was just going to live for a while and see how that went. And then in I fell into the canyon and uh, everything changed. Can you talk a little bit about the confusion that you experienced after sure. after that experience sure um I, I think that for or at least for me as i understand that the greatest confusion comes from the clarity that you get from an awakening experience which to me is, is moving into rose's second pyramid or the second stage of alchemy or it, it, it's 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 so clear that you think you understood everything and and the experience is like a holographic plate so in one sense you have experienced everything because the hologram contains everything but really really your your actual clarity is on a piece of the hologram 
So it's not a lie to say that you did see everything, but you didn't truly see it all clearly. And that's where the confusion starts, because a part of what you've seen is clear. Even to this day, it's unbelievably clear, and I can share it with anybody instantaneously. But as soon as you start moving to other parts of it, now I know it's fuzzy. But after the experience, I didn't see the fuzziness. I didn't see the... When, when something like that happens and you lose your identity, your egos shrink. You think they leave. You think the ego is gone, but it's actually just reorganizing itself. It's realized it can't have the same form it used to, and it's starting to play in a new role. And if you're not ready for it, when it comes back, it catches you by surprise. And that's what happened. That was the big confusion for me. It came back in a new form, and was particularly the form was, I'm very clear in what I'm seeing. It liked, it liked that I could present clarity. And so it had me present as much clarity as I could, which sometimes would be clear, but sometimes was fuzzy. And that's where the confusion began. It began uh, this challenge of thinking, thinking the clarity was complete and, uh, and, and thinking that the ego was under control. Because that, that's another aspect that, that people should really be aware of, that something that I think Rose was so good at with all of, all of you who were lucky enough to study with them directly, which was the better you can get your life in order before the experience happens, the easier it will be after. The more messy and difficult your life is prior, even more messy on the, on the backside, because the things you could hide from after an awakening, you can't hide from them anymore. They're going to come up, and they're going to come up in your face, and they're going to come up really hard. And so that's another part of the confusion, is things I thought I didn't have to deal with are right in my face day after day after day. And uh, so if you can work with that earlier, maybe that's there's a message in the book. If you can work with some of the real basic stuff earlier, the after effects won't be so bad. I, I think Art Tickner had something like that in his book, where, where his when he had his, his, his uh, awakening experience, his, his it was fairly calm for him. It wasn't really that confusing for him afterwards. But I know from having read Art stuff, he worked hard for like 10 years, like he was as, as, he was as hardcore a seeker as you could know at that time, I guess. And he did so much of the stuff that when his experience happened, there wasn't much more to do. It was just learn to integrate it, learn to kind of be in this new place. But if, if there's stuff to work on, it's, it's, you're not, it's not gonna hide anymore. It's coming. Art is certainly on my list of uh, people that I wanna get on the podcast. Um, just to check in with him. It's been a few years since that book came out, and I'd love to catch up with him. Uh, so, how about like today for you? What what is your? Do you have practices today? Do you or have things really settled down for you? No. What actually I've been facing mostly over the last number of years is physical illness. So again, there were areas of of, of my being that. Uh, needed to be examined and of course one of the best ways to get you to examine something is get you sick so you can't do anything and you're stuck having to think about yourself and, and where you are and what you're doing so moving through the illness period has been unbelievably challenging but now that i'm kind of moved past that and moving into a new location and and, and now the book being complete I've got uh, I've got a follow up to the book, which uh, was called it's like the additional material. It's about 150 pages that we didn't 
we weren't able to put in. I'm just cleaning that up to get ready. And I have two other two other more historical books that I'm finishing on. So uh, I'm working with that. And then I'm kind of now trying to see what is the best way to be available for people that would like some help. What's what's not the way I think that would be best? What's the way that actually is best? Uh, sort of really trying to step out of what I want and instead think, what is the best thing I actually have to share? And, and start to make that available again to, again, people who are are challenged and think that, think that my experience can help them. Because it's similar to uh, someone, say, an alcoholic or a drug addict. It's very hard to help them if you haven't been an alcoholic or a drug addict yourself because you're not in the same place. You, you, you can't, there's no, there's, you know, I was an alcoholic for a number of years. And so when I talk to an alcoholic, they know I'm not making stuff up. I've been there. I've been in the place they've been in. So we, we're operating on the same page. And it's the same thing with spirituality. If you're going to a teacher who's not doesn't have any of your experiences and doesn't know what you're talking about, it's very hard for them to help you. It, it, it helps to have someone that you can feel that rapport with, that, oh, yes, they, they understand, somebody understands me, someone understands my challenge, and now there's a chance something can open just, just from that, just from that ability to share. A lot of you who are listening to this right now are on an outstanding spiritual journey, and you're doing it right. You're actually doing it right. You probably don't even realize it because that's not what the books say to you for you to do. That's not what you see on the internet that tells you to do. But you're just asking deep questions about yourself. You're asking deep questions about your life, about your experience of why did my, you know, why did my wife leave me? Why did my job fire me? Why did my kid die? Why is my, you know, why can't I train my dog? Why can't, you know, you're asking the right questions and it's, you are, you are going to get somewhere. It just, you just need to be sort of a little bit uh, have a little confidence that it's that that you are actually doing something right. So there's lots of spiritual seekers. We just don't see them on a day-to-day -day basis, right? The ones we see are the ones who are going to the courses, going to the workshops, going to the whatever, who are uh, what I might say playing a happiness game. How can I be more happy? How can I get rid of my pain? How can I just smile all the time? And and you can you can get some of that for a while, but then it stops. And the question is then what? Mm -hmm. uh, so if people want to get in touch with you, what's the best way? Uh, I guess it would be to go to uh, through the website uh, that I have, uh, Egyptian-WisdomRevealed.com. Put that up on the screen, I guess. Um, uh, it would also be in the book as well. I, I guess one of the best ways, if someone really feels that what I'm saying here interests you in some way, a really good start would be to, to, to read the book, uh, to, to pick it up. I guess it's on Amazon now and it'll soon be on other, other locations. Read through some of that and then still see if, if, if that material connects with you. If that feels like this is something that you share an experience in some way with or you're sharing a, a challenge with in that way, then by all means, get in touch and, and see if something can be helpful for you. But uh, through the book and through the website would be the best ways of, of reaching me. Yeah, and uh, I mean, obviously, I recommend the book to people. I uh, uh, How long did it take us? About four or five years from... <laughs> years, it was 
Sean was always constantly kind of telling me it's just not good enough yet. And I would get a bit frustrated and I'm thinking, oh, it is. And uh, then I would look at it again and know oh, he's right. Something is just missing. It's just not. And of course, if it's a real spiritual book, you could work on it the rest of your life. Yeah. You, could be, you could be writing it forever. Eventually, there has to come a time when you feel it's reached a point where it has value and I can allow it to be released. And I think it's the same from your side. If you're working with a book, you finally feel it's maybe not perfect, but it, it is at a place now where it is of value. And, uh, and for me, that, that's all I can hope for, that, that there's, there's value in the great time we both spent in putting this together. Yeah, yeah. And, and uh, as I hope people have gathered, it's really wide ranging, uh, really pulls in from a lot of traditions. Uh, so it's unique in that respect and and worth taking a look at well any uh any parting thoughts in terms of uh no i, I guess though so now I, I might be interested because uh would be interested to try to get some tap foundation um uh, events happening in europe now now that i'm here we, we i guess there there's been a few in ireland that you've had over the years but it might be interesting to, to put that together so maybe over the next six months or or so that's something we all can talk about and see if there's an interest of having some things happen in Europe to just have gatherings to, to discuss these topics and and share what's what's already going on in, in North America because that's a long trip for all of us to get to. But if, if we have something here for all of us, that could be that could be valuable for for everyone in in, uh, in Europe. Yeah, that's a great thought, and uh, I certainly hope that this video and the audio reaches few people. In Europe, I know at one time we had uh, you know, a handful of people in Europe who who were trying to get meetings going, and as you say, the uh, the geographic challenge is isn't right. quite the same as. No, it's it's almost like as I thought of it, you you almost rather than having one in one location, you need to have three smaller ones in three different locations and try to and try to bring the people together. It's more important to bring them together where they can come rather than have one perfect event, have events where there can be gatherings. And I, I, that's just where I've been thinking of where, where I might be going next. You're asking what I've been doing now. What might, but that, that's something I think would be, the timing is right. The timing feels right for me. And I guess, and, and somehow the timing feels right. Maybe um, that there, there are people in Europe who, who would like this material. They just need to have access to it. Yeah, and I think that uh, meeting in person is something that uh, perhaps because I'm getting older, it seems like the younger people are not valuing it, it as much. Uh, but really, uh, you know, listening to audios and watching videos on YouTube and whatnot, uh, it's kind of like when you said actually going to the pyramid the pyramids going to Egypt and being there uh, it's very difficult to explain the feeling that comes with that in the same way with meeting people in person it's one of the challenges I have now there's a lot of people studying Egypt now and they've got their YouTube channel they've got their blog set up but they've never been they're putting out video after video after video about their research but they've never once been there and taken a, even a photograph themselves and like you say, it's an experience. It's an experience. I mean, I never got the chance to meet Richard Rose. I, I've met him in a couple of dreams, actually. And he's, he was pretty, 
even there he's been pretty clear uh, and pretty straightforward. So I can't imagine what the opportunity would have been like for those who actually got to experience him. I mean, I, I got the experience with Mr. Park, which was, uh, we write about some of those in the book, the, the, some of the wild story, but that, I, I, would, I would assume somebody who's actually been there at the farm and got to be with him, that would be worth a hundred books reading. One weekend with him equals a hundred books. And so similar to what you're saying to, to one group gathering means far more than, you know, 10 or 20 videos watched. Well, on that note, thank you, Howdy. I really appreciate thanks. you doing this. Thanks again. And, and uh, thanks for uh, people may not recognize, but you know, Sean's a very good interviewer. Uh, I don't know how many actually watch these videos. I do. And I also listen to the interviewer because there's a time when the interviewer needs to let the person they're interviewing speak. And there's times they need to step in and ask a different question, ask a clarification, add something, and, and, and you do a very good job with that. And so uh, you're talking about art. You should get art on here and do another wonderful interview with him. I, you know, I just might, uh, I just might make that the next little uh, podcast. Yeah. Thank you for listening to this edition of Journals of Spiritual Discovery. I'm your host, Sean Nevins. For more information about today's guest, as well as more interviews, books, and other resources, go to spiritualteachers.org. That's spiritualteachers.org.